Welcome to Careers in Crescendo Lessons for Musicians. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today on the podcast, Rachel Roberts chats with Eric Booth, an internationally renowned teaching artist and award-winning arts leader. Rachel and Eric chat about his story, his development of teaching artistry, as well as his newly released book, Making Change, Teaching Artists and Their Role in Shaping a Better World. I think you'll enjoy listening to this episode, hearing about Eric's projects, and his humor. Enjoy! Eric, hello. It's so good to see you, to hear your voice. It's been a few months since I last saw you. And for our listeners today, I'm I'm joined by Eric Booth. And if you don't know Eric, you are in for a wonderful treat on this podcast. Eric is a, a leader in so many respects. He's often called the father of teaching artistry, and you are just a wonderful human that I am so glad to have get to work with you in so many different aspects of my career since I began, actually. But, you know, you've done so many different things. When you introduce yourself to people, how do you like to introduce yourself? What do you say? Well, I I should start introducing myself as wonderful human. Thank you for that introduction. I don't get that very often. In teaching artistry, credentials don't really mean anything. So what I usually introduce myself as is the oldest living teaching artist. Here's this practice. It's everywhere. It's in every country. It springs up under different names, sometimes not even with a title, but this essential human urgency to not just make art and put it out there and hope good things happen, but make art, put it out there and do everything you can to have it achieve its full social impact. It's everywhere. So there's no succinct way. There's not an agreed upon vocabulary. I'm just the oldest old fart still working in the field. And a wonderful human. <laughs> you truly are. Today, Eric and I are talking. He's just released a book called Making Change, Teaching Artists in Their Role in Shaping a Better World. There's so many pieces of, of your history, but as I read this book, I realized that every interaction I've had with you professionally from Houston to Atlanta to the league to NEC and even here, I now can take a step back and see that all of those interactions were through the lens of teaching artistry. And that was kind of a huge aha moment when I was reading this book. But to begin, could you share a little bit of your background and how you got into becoming a teaching artist? Uh, yeah, and it might start to illuminate that lovely compliment you just gave me that that I have internalized what it means to be a teaching artist. It's not just a kind of gig. It's actually an aesthetic way of engaging with the world. Uh, but my background is going to be familiar to a lot of your listeners, conservatory trained artist in theater you know, in my early years, I was so rigid and conservative. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was a young actor in New York, I was so concerned about the quality of my art form. I had a group of friends and we called ourselves the art police. And we wanted to 
take out the perpetrators of mediocrity and the keep the purple of commerce out of the care of our artistic form. And so I had a real traditional training as a classical theater artist, went through Shakespeare festivals, worked around the country, came to New York to sort of do what actors did in those days and found it was going pretty well. I was working all the time. You think, well, this is it, except I didn't like doing it. I didn't like the life of a of a New York City actor. I mean, I didn't like the commercials and I didn't like doing a show eight times a week. And so I began to feel this dissatisfaction with my hippie aspiration for a life of rich art. Um, there was this tension in me. And so after a few years, when everything was going good, everyone on the outside is saying, oh yeah, this is how it should go, it's great. I began sniffing around the edges of the field to see if I could find other things that would enrich parts of me that were missing. And I stumbled across the very beginnings of what was the profession of teaching artistry in getting hired at Lincoln Center Education, which was doing some work in schools. And it was in the very first workshop there that I got a feel for this other thing of actually, and here's the number one job of a teaching artist, the satisfaction of activating the artistry of other people. And then taking that huge human force and guiding it toward many different ends, toward greater appreciation of a performance or maybe some social outcome, but observing and caring for and respecting and then activating the creative capacity of all persons call it the artistry of all people provided the satisfaction that I had been missing when I was doing a show downtown eight times a week. Thank you for sharing that. I can imagine that a lot of us identify with pieces of that journey. And part of it goes towards identifying your own self and, and what gives you satisfaction, what gives me satisfaction and what doesn't, and, and not really discovering that until you walk along those paths and have those experiences. You know, you talk about that some. And I appreciate the statement that you said, the the joy that you find in, in identifying that artistry that everyone has. That's how you begin this book, is the framing of everyone has artistry. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Over recent years, not even so recent, I found myself using the word art less often because people have connotations and associations with that word that really attach it to fancy buildings and high artistic expression and really a segmented set of activities, nouns, special buildings, big philanthropy that limit it to the art club, to the limited percentage of American people who actually identify as people who love the arts, who know the arts, know how to navigate their way inside the arts. According to the psychographic research I read, that may be as little as 6% of the U.S. public. That means 94% do not identify, do not have the same natural skill set to be able to enter those buildings and feel at home, 
to encounter something that's a little unfamiliar in those buildings and turn it into a positive life experience. So I got interested in what I could do to open up a readiness and a, a kind of preparedness to encounter artworks and make personally relevant connections. That's the thing. That's what teaching artists enable people to do in the arts is perform this act of consequence, which is make, and look, it's a creative act, make a personally relevant connection. When I look at the research for what brings people to renew their season subscription to the symphony, it's that they had a personally emotional or spiritual experience in the previous year. That's what brings us back. And it takes a skill set to open that up to those who aren't in the fortunate 6% who had a background that has prepared them to be able to do that. Meanwhile, artistic participation is everywhere. People are making stuff they care about. They're rejoicing in the creations of others. This huge, vibrant life of music. When I was teaching teaching artistry at Juilliard, so these are grad students of music, you know, they're they're in the mothership. So, you know, they're going down the tunnel to a big career in music. There was a set of them that wanted to learn teaching artist skills while there. And there was one assignment in the year-long course they had to take with me before they could have a year of practicum where they had to, this was the one that terrified them. They would lie awake all night before the day they had to do this activity. And the exercise was they had to get on a New York City public bus and engage people in substantive conversations about classical music before they got off. And they were terrified that people were going to hit them, that like something horrible was going to happen. And almost invariably, what they discovered is that if you connect with people around music, everyone has a big life in music. Connect there in the water table this appreciation of this art form where we all come to life, once you're connected there, they get real interested in this narrow subsection that you've gone super deep in. So that's where my passion arose when I began to see joyful, amazing, brilliant artistry everywhere. And I wanted to eliminate or at least navigate the separation so that both sides of the high arts and the low arts could come together. And I find the word artistry, this recognition of the universal capacity to do this, not for everyone to sit down and play a Rachmaninoff string quartet, but for everyone to make a personally relevant connection inside it and to make a personally relevant connection in a conversation with a friend, that's artistry. I love that assignment, by the way. <laughs> I could imagine that I would have that same angst the night before. Your comments just now and thinking of the word artistry and the role of a teaching artist is making me think of a piece that I read in this book that says the teaching artist guideline is slow down to speed up. And it's also making me think of another piece of the book that is 80% of what you teach is who you are. 
So again, going back to those experiences, what have you had? What experiences bind us all? What experiences connect us? And I'm I'm curious if you could unpack those just a little bit more. You know, the the slow down to speed up and then that law of 80%. Yeah, in the book Making Change, there's a whole bunch of teaching artist tools that I introduce. Um I guess it's largely to support teaching artists who naturally do them and didn't know they had names, didn't know they were also being done in Myanmar and in Nicaragua, that these are universal tools that have arisen. And slow down to speed up is one that is counterintuitive, which is if you take a little more time on the front end of bringing people into a new area of learning, take the time to open up their personal connection to it. So it it makes sense why it would be like this. They go much further in the long run. I'll give you an example from uh, some arts integrated work a Juilliard student of mine did, where he was working with a history teacher who said, Okay, David, we are going to be teaching the Underground Railroad in American history, where slaves were escaping the horrors of slavery, traveling at night, and they used stars as navigational guidelines with songs. So songs connected to them, star guidance to help them get to the next safe haven. So would you do some musical work to get them all excited about the music of the Underground Railroad? So he could have launched right into, listen to all the cool things about the music of the Underground Railroad. And there's beautiful stuff to learn, but that's the same as school. It's just slightly more interesting school. It's not personally relevant. So what he did instead was he started with this question, a good teaching artist question. Where in life do people use music to stay alive? And the class explored that. And boy, did they have a lot to say about it. Those eighth graders know a whole lot about music being something they depend on to feel alive. And other places in their lives where they've experienced music as more than just a discretionary pleasure, but a lifeline. And then as he began to guide that interest into discovery of the music of the Underground Railroad, they had a completely different relationship to that body of music. And in fact, to the teacher's great pleasure, they tested way better on that little chunk of their history curriculum. And research shows it's true. If a learner has taken ownership of the relevance of a subject matter, they always go way further in their learning. This applies in so many areas. And the teaching artist has the skill to actually manage that slowdown, to open up What's relevant about this piece of music? What's relevant about doing this kind of work? My God, the number of lectures I've listened to about Rondo form before I had to watch a symphony. If once somebody had given me a little bit of guidance on why the hell does it matter? Why should I care about Rondo form? And I'm a good student, you know, like I'll watch that symphony and I'll look for the end of the A section and I'm listening for the beginning of the B section. And I notice the recapitulation and I get to the end and think, what was that? I just worked my ass off and I don't get much that I care about except a vague recognition of Rondo form. 
Open up why it matters. That's why people go to works of art. That's what brings them back to works of art. And the techniques of teaching artistry are the skills that allow me and others who aren't in that art club to find our way in. There's so much in what you said that is so poignant, you know, and I'm I'm struck by so many of those pieces. It's led me down a couple different threads, but I still do want to get to the law of 80%. I promise we'll get there because it's one of my biggies. I, I want to talk a little bit. Your examples had me thinking is about the applicability regardless of age, right? The examples that you just shared, some were with kids. There's other examples in the book, Making Change, that are with adults. It goes to the mindset of having a growth mindset, instilling that curiosity that can be done at any age. Can you speak just a little bit about your work as a teaching artist in all different age ranges and demographics and and the applicability that you find? It's a really good, sharp question because the number one criticism of teaching artist work in schools is that they haven't exactly landed on what's hot for the participants. You know, they had a kind of a generic idea and they went at it and it was okay, but it didn't actually artistically light up the kids. There is a responsibility to know your audience enough know your participants so you have a pretty close guess of what's going to be exciting for them, where their learning edge is. And asking about my own experience, it's been pretty lucky in that never having had a job, I've had a whole lot of projects over 45 years that have actually introduced me to the widest possible range of audiences And where I haven't been able to be skillful enough, I've witnessed other teaching artists be so skillful, it makes my jaw drop. But what the preparation for the work with a specific audience is, is a responsibility. I think it's an ethical responsibility to know, not just make assumptions, because our assumptions are usually not on target and they're often insulting but to really have done our homework to find out where's what's really hot and relevant here that's appropriate to where we want to go. And then in cases where you have a broad audience, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Tanglewood family concerts in the summer, everything from newborn babies to 98-year-old great-grandparents. How do you select uh, an entry point that is actually engaging for that full range. Well, I can't speak to the newborns, but uh, that, you know, it's not going to be condescending for the grownups thinking, oh, I'm at a kiddie show now. For example, one concert we did at Tanglewood was what makes music sound heroic. That's interesting to a nine-year-old. That's interesting to a 95-year-old, especially if the teaching artist challenge becomes, okay, we got the orchestra up here on the stage. They just played the most boring version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star you ever heard. Would you give them suggestions on how to turn this into a heroic statement like something you'd see in Star Wars? And they tried out stuff, you know, louder, not very heroic, you know, faster, not very heroic. And thank God for the kid in the back row who finally yelled out, brass! And so the brass took the theme and everyone's going, oh yeah, 
oh yeah, now we're on to something. And everyone of all ages is calling out ideas. We're trying. And within about seven minutes, we had a list of here are six elements composers use to create the heroic sound of an orchestra. And they could follow those six elements all the way through the concert because they were theirs. They owned them. And how much droopier it would have been if we came out with a little mini pre-concert lecture and said, here are the six key elements of creating the heroic sound in uh, composition. And they would have followed them and admired them, but they wouldn't have owned them. They would not have been alive in discovery the way the teaching artist approach worked. That's awesome. I bet that was a fun experience to be at and seeing that. Oh, it's so fun. That process of discovery and people's eyes lighting up too. I, I love, I love that example. Thank you. And they loved the fact that we didn't know what they were going to come up with. And the orchestra didn't either. You know, we'd get some weird suggestions and, you know, we'd kind of turn and say, okay, conductor, you know, try that one. Let's see how it comes out. And to everyone be in discovery mode inside music was what created this sense of community in the room and not experts and recipients. I want to get back to the law of 80%. And at the end of part one in your book, you lay out some fundamentals of teaching artistry. And there's how many of them? Six of them. Number five is authenticity and living by the law of 80%. Can you give our audience and listeners some more insight into that particular piece of fundamentals? You bet. I call it a law to make it sound scary. And that number 80% creates the false impression I've done some research. Uh, I have not, but the law of 80% holds true nonetheless, which is 80% of what you teach, 80% of your impact is who you are. The greatest tool you have as a teaching artist, when you are directly participating, when you are directly engaging with your audience, your by far most powerful tool is you, the artist, in the room with them, being the artist with them. So that when you hear an idea of theirs, and take it and build on it. When you get excited by something that just happened in the room and you go with it and go somewhere that nobody knew that was gonna happen before. When you are the live creative artist listening, because people can't generally speak particularly articulately within the discipline, but you're hearing so hard, you can take their ideas and turn them kind of illuminate them for the valuable artistic ideas they have in them and then build on that. That's hugely reaffirming and empowering for people. And it's thrilling to listen to people as hard as you listen to music and hear the things they aren't quite saying, but that you know they mean, and then work with that. They are getting more information about what the arts can do for life from the joyful, creative way you are participating with them than from any handout, any promotional material, or any review afterwards. That is the direct line to the gut and the spirit of what it's like to be inside art making. Here's why I dedicated my whole damn life to this, because it's so good in here. 
And I got to say, it is not a big percentage of musicians that are radiant with the benefits of a life in music. Uh, I discovered this when I first came to Juilliard. Man, that was a, that was not a joyful bunch of people. And when I began working with major orchestras in the U.S. and around the world, they did not radiate joyfulness at their good fortune in spending a whole life inside this amazing world. Teaching artists live by the law of 80%. It doesn't mean they, they act happy. It means they find that place where they are seeing art in their participants and they are in direct conversation with it, eliciting it with a variety of tools, or when you're younger, with just a few tools, and the courage to try something new, and it didn't work, and you say to the group, wow, that really bombed. I had this idea for this activity, and here's what I was going for. It sure didn't happen. How could I get there? Anybody got an idea? That oh, That's the law of 80% at work. And if you can live in that 80% and really be an open version of your artist self, there's nothing more powerful. And I can imagine doing that takes a lot of vulnerability and doing that takes a lot of honesty with yourself. And courage. Yes. And courage. And, and I will say, I'm making it sound like you have to be a real verbal person to do this. I've worked with a lot of ensembles where there's a couple of people who don't think they're good at the talking thing. You know, so in their string quartet, it's like, okay, you two are the good talkers. You do all the talking and and I'll smile and be enthusiastic. We got to find roles for them too. You can fully engage with an audience without using a single word. Actually, on the iTech website, we just published a resource on being a teaching artist without ever using any words. So it's lots of ideas of how we don't just have to default to being good speakers because that can be a real issue for some musicians who really thought there's a reason I went into a nonverbal medium, you idiot. And there are ways you can do it. And I've had a lot of musicians who use their instrument as their speaking tool. And it's really fun. You work for a music school an arts organization, or maybe you're starting your own ensemble. The Eastman Leadership Bootcamp is designed for you to get the skills you need to make a real impact today while helping you advance on your career journey. Level up your leadership skills with the Eastman Leadership Bootcamp online next June. Visit musicleadership.org and apply by March 1st for bootcamp scholarships. Part two of your book begins with a discussion and framing of art versus entertainment. And this struck me for so many reasons. You know, I've, I'm trained classically as a flutist as well, have worked in orchestras, have worked in higher education institutions that uphold the quote unquote classical tradition. There are certainly other pieces of it. And it's always been a topic of conversation especially as it relates to audiences, to how to relate to communities. What is that relatability in the work, in the artistry that you are creating? So when I turned the page and was beginning part two of this book and 
you know, was reading about your experience of having this interview on live TV, of being asked the difference between art and entertainment, I thought, oh my gosh, I feel like I know that, but to have the words around it would take me a minute. So I felt really empathetic. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I would just keep talking for two minutes straight, right? Like what you did. But could you speak a little bit and share your definitions that you have come to about the similarities and differences between art and entertainment? It's a pleasure. And you've been very kind not to mention I completely botched it in the interview. And it was I only came up with that definition out of shame and determination to never go through that again. So here's the distinction I've come to draw, which is that entertainment, which please Lord, is not the opposite of art. We're in so much trouble if entertainment is the opposite of art. Uh, what distinguishes entertainment is that it happens within what we already know. Whatever our reaction to something, you know, we get excited or we laugh or it's a scary movie, we get scared. Underneath it, entertainment says, yes, the world is the way you think it is. And that feels great. My goodness, to have highly skilled people go to great lengths to confirm my sense of the way the world is, I'll pay serious money for that. The distinction of art is that it happens outside of what we already know. Inherent in the artistic experience is this amazing human capacity to expand our sense of the possible, to make connections to something new in what we're discovering in the moment. And that capacity, that verb, that action that we take in expanding and making a connection outside the known is art. That's the art. It's not in the noun. Because, you know, people have different responses. One person's art is one person's entertainment is another person's nightmare. If you actually are expanding outside of what you already know and finding relevant meaning, you know, I listen to music that teenagers listen to. I don't even find it entertaining. I certainly don't find it artistic. And when they start to describe to me what they're hearing and what they experience as they listen to it, they are having artistic experiences, even if I find the music repulsive. And it is that experience that is the power. When you are having artistic experiences, you are engaged in the verbs of art rather than playing trading cards with the nouns of art. And what's especially crucial here is we live in a country in the U.S. that is noun central in the known universe. We love our nouns. We want to get to the gold. We want the finish. All the richness all the things that matter about art lie in the verbs. So I, teaching artists are masters in the verbs of art. They also can make nouns of art, but their teaching artistry is mastery with the use of, the opening up, the verbs of art. And the thing that makes me find teaching artistry so important, even for things like peace building and democracy is that nouns 
tend to separate people and verbs tend to bring people together. If it's, I like this, but I don't like that, that is a separation. But if you are participating together to figure out what makes the heroic sound of an orchestra, you are actually working together toward a common goal. Even if one of you is a major symphonic musician and one is a 12-year-old kid that's never touched an instrument, together you are working on a worthwhile project. So art is what brings us together and entertainment is wonderful too. Thank you for that. One thread that I just want to highlight here is a piece that that you just said about where teaching artists are in different spaces, right? If it's with orchestras, if it's with students, if it's with the UN, trying to work towards world peace, teaching artists can be embedded in every piece of a community and every piece of our life and every piece of the world as we operate. Can you say a little bit more about that value and that benefit and why teaching artists are crucial to making change happen? Boy, teaching artists are moving to the front lines of everything. Major cities, uh, New York City, Los Angeles, have teaching artists in residence to help them achieve the government goals because active engagement of a public is what creates change. Teaching artists are moving into the forefront of the climate crisis. Uh, the program ITAC, International Teaching Artists Collaborative, uh, has been able to commission teaching artists to work in communities around the world to activate understanding and commitment to climate crisis response through making stuff they care about. If on the ITAC website, there's a, it's called ITAC Climate Impact, we can put it in the in the show notes. Uh, there's dozens of examples. We have an online course where you can learn how to do this. But the idea is that teaching artists are able to engage people's creativity and then guide it toward any number of ends. In the book, I point out there's seven major ways teaching artists tend to be uh, used, but employed. But what really matters is this capacity to engage people when people are desperately disengaged from the things that matter most. Arts providing a big enrichment, but man, we need people taking ownership of climate issues. I'll make one example for climate. A lot of artists make artworks that address climate issues, and that's great. They make beautiful things that People who are in the arts appreciate how beautiful and meaningful they are, but I'm not sure one damn person's actions have been changed by their appreciation of a, a symphony based on the algorithms from melting glaciers. You put a teaching artist in a community with a well-planned exercise, and they are banging on the doors of City Hall to saying, let's change the local climate behaviors because the animals around us are at risk. So it is teaching artistry and this universal power of creative engagement that gives me hope, even in the climate crisis where it's hard to have hope. And certainly we all need hope. There's so many things going on right now in the world. Climate change is just one of them, but it's a biggie. 
It's a biggie. And one of the beautiful things about teaching artists work, it's inherently joyful. Yeah. So your, your hope is not pasted on. It springs authentically from the work. That's so important too, to have that hopeful motivation. Yes, there's a drive to make change, but to have that that frame and that lens that this is something we can all do together as a community in a joyful way, right? Well, the the second part of the book goes through a lot of tools of teaching artistry and even outlines possible classes and class titles and concepts that you could have. I'm I'm curious, looking at the book as a whole, Eric, what do you hope people take away from this writing? You know, what led me to write it was here I've been in this field talking about it for 45 years, and I finally realized I didn't have anything I could put in the hands of someone who didn't know what teaching artistry was that might get them excited about it. So in my blindness, advocating kind of promiscuously for the value of teaching artists, there was a real resource that was just plain missing. So my hope is that this book provides almost a calling card that you can put it in the hands of someone who should know about this capacity, who can use it to make their work go better, who can use it to get better results. So in fact, I should mention to your listeners, if they go to the book's website, which teachingartistmakingchange.com, I raised some money where people, after they read this book and you start to have ideas of like, you know, there's this doctor I know who loves the arts and might be into this, or there's my sister-in-law who is a social worker and she should know about social prescribing. There's a place you can go to get free copies of the book. We will send you free copies if you will put it in the hands of someone who should know about teaching artistry. And the, the project is called 5,000 New Advocates. And we're relying on the field to take these free copies and put them where they can make an expansion of awareness and a, a sense of the efficacy of this field. And that's why podcasts like this are so helpful to let people know there's this resource out there and why colleagues like you make it so nice for me to help amplify what I refer to as the sleeping giant of social change to wake this giant up a bit. Well, it's a joy to be able to help amplify the work that you are doing. Your work has touched so many people's lives, and I love that you took the time to create a book that captures an intro, more than an intro, but an overview of what teaching artistry is, as well as gives the field, gives all of us tools for ways that we can continue growing and developing. Aside from the website of the book that you mentioned, if someone is interested in teaching artistry, what other resources would you recommend? Well, it's a disorganized field. I wish I had a nifty answer to say, go to these three places and everything is covered. Most higher education, like universities with music and arts programs, have an elective way you can learn teaching artistry while you're in school. Many major cities have places where you can learn teaching artistry, but mostly it's a little hard to get into because you get your training when you're hired. And it's a catch 22 to get hired by a museum or a symphony orchestra and then get your training at that point. 
So it's a kind of entrepreneurial find your way in. There are a lot of resources mentioned in the book. And if you follow some of the leads of resources, you may find things in your city or things online that can get you started. Once you get started, you're going to start finding colleagues all over the place. Fantastic. And my last question for you, is there something fun that you are working on right now that you want to share with our listeners? Oh man, I got six big projects underway at the moment. Um, awesome. Let me pick one of them. In We're creating something that's never happened before. We've given it the title NETAC, New England Teaching Artist Collaborative, the New England States. We're creating hubs in every state to train teaching artists to design and lead thriving community projects so that they can design and lead projects that take communities that are fractured or struggling or where there's social issues, you know, of tension to design and lead thriving community projects in those communities. And if we can get this airplane to lift off, we will have a whole region of the US working together to bring the work of teaching artistry down to the community level to address the needs of isolation, the needs of anxiety, the needs that are keeping communities so much more separated than they need to be. We're on the starting end. I'm an old guy, but I got I got one more biggie in me and I hope this is it. Eric, that's fantastic. I, I can't wait to hear more about that. Thank you. You always find your way on the cutting edge of what's developing, what's so fun and so fascinating. And thank you always. Thank you for this book. And thank you for everything that you contribute to all of us in, in the work that you do. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work you you do at Eastman and for the all those jobs you've had along the way where I've been with connected with you all the way. Thank you for consistently contributing and contributing and now contributing to your listenership. So thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks. Today's episode of Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians was written and hosted by Rachel Roberts. The episode was produced by Kelly Jetson. The music was written and produced by Will J, and the artwork designed by Joyce Sang. As always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.